0: If you would uh, join me in your copy of God's Word in James chapter 2, we'll be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. James is a letter written by the half brother of Jesus and leader in the early church in Jerusalem, Uh, probably one of the earliest, if not the earliest, books of the New Testament that was written. and uh, uh, sent to the church as it was scattered in various local gatherings, uh, not altogether unlike ours, throughout the Roman world at the time. We've seen regularly that James uh, already, even in the last couple or three weeks, that James is regularly calling the people of God to live lives consistent with the profession uh, that they have made, that Christ is Lord. The theme verse of James is, in chapter one, verse twenty-two, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You've probably noticed, and you haven't, and if you haven't yet, then it's probably because it's your first week here, and that's just fine. That there's a bit of a typewriter theme uh, flowing through this sermon series, and uh, and and it's uh, I guess just a way for me to show off uh, a pointless hobby that I have. In in collecting uh, and and being fascinated uh, with typewriters. I learned a funny thing uh, over the last couple weeks. If you tell people about a strange collection that you have, other people who don't have that same proclivity would like to add to your collection. And so I've had, I've already added two other uh, typewriters to, to my collection since starting this series. We, we've been in James for two weeks and I've added, uh, two, uh, two typewriters to my collection in two weeks. And, um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but we'll find out. This morning I want to, uh, show to you, um, uh, the first typewriter, the one that started my collection, uh, and it is this, mid 60s model singer scholastic t4 now um what may uh, catch your eye more than anything about this typewriter by the way, did anybody ever have one of these in their house I, i've got one or two see one or two raised hands i had this model in their house that's pretty impressive um the, the most eye-catching thing about this typewriter is its sort of minty, greenish-bluish uh, color. And perhaps that is what caught my wife's eye when she picked it up at a thrift store. Um, but the most interesting thing about the Singer Scholastic is that it's really not a Singer. It's actually a Royal. When I say that brand name Singer, those of you who, who are familiar uh, uh, with uh, uh, you know, things in the last several decades know that Singer made predominantly sewing machines, Right? Okay, yes, so anybody own a Singer sewing machine? Lots of hands. Anybody own a Singer typewriter? Like, no hands. I'm the only one. Okay. Because that's what Singer was known for, was making sewing machines, not typewriters. And yet, here before me is a Singer scholastic typewriter. As I said, it's not really a Singer. It's really a royal. See, in the mid-60s, there was a Dutch company that kind of bought the rights to produce, uh, make, Uh, typewriters for the Royal brand. Royal is much more popular, much more collectible, much more well-known among typewriter brands. And in the mid-60s, Royal had a line, had a model of typewriter called the Royalite. The Royalite looks almost identical to the singer Scholastic. It's a little bit more collectible, though, because the case is a little bit different. Uh, You'll see the top plate just kind of Pops off here, and so you can get to the ribbon and the uh, and the slugs and everything else that's uh, inside of there. But on the Royal Light, it's the 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 top plate is more kind of machined or or worked into the whole uh, body of the typewriter. It just looks more uniform. They even made the Royal Light in some duo tone versions where one part of the body is one color, another part part of the body is a different color. They're much more collectible, not because the guts inside are different or better. There's no difference. Between the guts of the Singer Scholastic and the Royal Royal Light, but the brand name is different. There's a different badge on there that indicates a different manufacturer. This Singer was picked up in a thrift shop because somebody thought it was not worth keeping in their house. It's hard to find a Royal Royal Light anywhere other than like on eBay or on Etsy, a place where you can auction or bid to buy. Uh, one of these more collectible typewriters. I'll be honest, I don't have much preference for this typewriter. It works fine. There's some things about it I like and don't like. But I tell you what, if it was a royal royalite, it would be on a higher shelf in my office. (laughs) The problem is the guts of the Singer Scholastic are no different than the royalite. The stuff inside is no different. Even the body itself is really no different, but the badge on there is. And because of that badge, it says singer and not royal, I've made a distinction about what typewriter has greater value in my collection. Now, that may be a fine thing to do, to place value, to, to exercise partiality or, or give preference to certain brand names over others, but it is not acceptable when it comes to dealing with human beings. This is the problem that was facing the churches that James is writing this letter to, that people in the church were treating other individuals based upon what they looked like, how they appeared uh, in terms of external appearances. And James writes and addresses this problem in James chapter 2 to point out the sinfulness of this practice of partiality, of making distinctions, of exercising prejudice within the body Uh, of christ in this passage today we'll find that genuine faith real faith in jesus christ whom james calls the lord of glory in chapter 2 verse 1 genuine faith in jesus christ prevents keeps stops christians from the sin of partiality real faith in jesus holds us back it restrains us from treating others with deference because of external appearances In turn, Christians are to honor and love every individual because God's mercy toward us makes us free to care for others without distinction or partiality. God's mercy to us makes us merciful to those who are not like us. And so as we explore and uh, open up these verses today from James 2, I would hope that we would all determine in our hearts to treat all believers and all persons, whether they're in Christ or not, with mercy being equitable, and showing dignity and honor to all who bear the image of God. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May God edify His church as we study His Word. You may be seated. This passage takes uh, a, a structure that points out, I think, two two different things to us, two different uh, uh, thoughts or, or or core ideas. And the first is this, the sin of partiality. James spends the first 11 verses of chapter 2, Talking about what the sin of partiality is and why it is sinful, where it comes from, and what its effects are. He tells us first in verses 2 and 4 that the sin of partiality comes from evil intentions. Notice, we can, we can say, even from verse 1, that partiality is sinful, or that James can say it is sinful uh, based upon the relationship that believers have with Jesus. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That is to say, because Jesus is Lord and He is glorious, any, uh, any expression of partiality among the body of believers is unacceptable. So James roots the the sinfulness of partiality in the glory and lordship of Christ. It is to disobey Jesus. And this sin of partiality comes from, it originates from evil intentions in the hearts of man. As James describes what partiality looks like in the context of the churches to which he is writing, he uses the example here of two men coming presumably as visitors to a worship gathering of the church. One of the visitors is visibly wealthy. He's well-to-do. He's wearing gold rings and fine clothing. Perhaps he's a major influencer in the community, the kind of person that other people would want to be like. The other man is a poor man. And as these two, this rich man and this poor man, come into the gathering, the rich man is given a seat of prominence, very likely with a footstool to keep his fancy rich feet off of the dirt floor where the uh, church members are gathering, while the poor man is told to sit on the floor like the servant he is at the feet of the congregation leader. When this happens, James says, the church is making distinctions. The the Greek word that James uses for that word partiality means literally to receive according to the face. It means to judge according to external appearances, to bring someone in to treat them uh, according to their appearance. That is, these people are receiving according to the face, making moral judgments about the visible differences between these people, the rich man and the poor man. In this sinful mindset, The Christians who are falling into the sin of partiality are assuming that to be rich is to be morally superior to being poor. The rich man is a better person in quality because he is rich. The rich man is a better person in quality because of his status in the community. The rich man is a better person in quality and and dignity than the poor man because he is wealthy, says the sinful minded, partial Christian. James is clear. By making distinctions this way, by receiving people according to their face, according to their appearance, these kinds of judgments, these kinds of uh, uh, distinctions about what people are on the inside based upon what they look like on the outside, Christians who do this set themselves up as judges in the place of God by determining who is morally superior to whom. When that is only God's place to judge. And their judgments are not only contrary to the judgment of God, but they're motivated by the sinful predisposition to partiality that they have within their hearts. James says, When you do this, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? God, the only rightful judge, has much to say about who is valuable and how we ought to treat others. And he says so in at least three different places in Scripture. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 15, God says to the people of Israel, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, the Apostle Paul, writing in the inspiration of God, writes to those who are masters of bondservants in their home who are also Christians. He says, masters, uh, do the same to your servants and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Further, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through 29, as the Apostle Paul there is describing how we are saved by God's grace through faith and not by any external works that we do, he says, Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, the guardian which was the Old Testament law, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there is therefore Neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The Christian who practices partiality does so out of evil intentions in their hearts, seeking to judge as morally superior certain people because of their appearance over against others. The sin of partiality also disregards those whom God honors. That's why it's another reason why it is sinful. Look at verse, uh, verses 5 and uh, the first part of verse 6. James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Not only is partiality sinful because it seeks to put ourselves in the place of judgment over others, but it demeans those who are particularly special to God. In this case, partiality between the rich and the poor dishonors the needy person, whom God himself holds in a place of special honor. James says that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. This ought to ring, uh, I think, familiar to those of us who have spent much time studying the teachings of Jesus, who himself begins his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, with these words. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Gospel writer Luke recounts these words also, this teaching as well, in Luke 6, verse 20. Jesus, lifting up his eyes on his disciples, said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? James clearly knows the teaching of Jesus and is applying it to the partiality, the sin of partiality among the churches in the first century. Now certainly neither James nor Jesus is saying that all poor people because of their poverty are saved from their sins. James is not saying being poor makes you right with God. Jesus is not saying that either. No, salvation, we know, is only for those who have recognized that they have nothing in and of themselves to offer to a holy God in order to atone for our sins. Freedom from sin and the promise of a right relationship with God are for every person who hates his sin, for every person who sees his or her need for salvation, and for every person who trusts God only to fix what our sin has destroyed. The spiritual trap that is laid by wealth and by worldly power subtly teaches us, tries to convince us to believe that because we are wealthy in this age, that we have all that we'll need in the next life as well. The the trap of wealth would have us to believe that our ability to amass wealth in this life, possessions in this life, surely means that we're able to influence God's attitude and relationship toward us because we're wealthy. In this way, wealth and power blind mankind to the deadly spiritual realities of sin. Wealth keeps us from seeing sin rightly. Worldly possessions keep us from seeing God as He truly is and seeing the deadly nature of our sin. But what James and what Jesus each are saying is that the poor, those who are needy in this world, are not so spiritually hindered as those who are wealthy. Rather, their earthly poverty tends to make them all the more clear-eyed about the true state of the world, that sin has broken every human structure and relationship. Having little in this life better prepares the poor and the needy to see their spiritual poverty as well, enabling them to all the more readily trust Christ with their whole lives. Worldly wealth may be appealing to those who live in the world, but it is ultimately a hindrance to our ability to follow Christ freely and faithfully, obediently every step. And so you can see why God would look with special care for the poor, for the powerless, for the vulnerable. For it is they who have much to teach the wealthy, powerful, and influential about what real need is and who can ultimately be trusted to provide. The Sin of partiality comes from evil intentions, and it dishonors those that God honors specially. But third, the sin of partiality of making distinctions among one another based upon what we look like is ultimately illogical and self-defeating. It it actually works to undermine the work of the gospel. Look again at verses 6 and 7. James says, You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The sin of partiality makes no sense. It undermines the saving work of Jesus and the good news of salvation in his name. James says here in these verses that partiality aligns us with certain kinds of people. That is, to be partial toward a rich person is to say, I'm saddling up next to this guy. I want to be affiliated or associated with the rich man and thereby undercuts our allegiance to Christ. It is true, undeniably true, that we tend to show partiality to those people who are most like us and those whom we most want to be like. Consider you walk into a lunchroom at work, a cafeteria, and uh, sitting there in the cafeteria two tables of people, one that is uh, surrounded with mostly white or light-colored skinned people, and the other with darker or brown-colored skinned people, and consider the tone of your own skin. Who are you more likely to go sit with at lunch? You don't have to answer, just answer in your own mind. My guess is we'd be all more likely to go sit with those who are more like us. Because we assume that they have a similar life experience with us, that they'll receive us more willingly, that we have more in common with these people who look like us. That is what our sinful hearts tend to, want us, tend, tend to drag us to, to do in practicing partiality, to align with those who are most uh, apparently, by appearances, like us and those that we want to be like. Consider also, you walk into the same lunchroom and you see a table full of rich people and a table full of of visibly poor people. Who are you more likely to want to go sit with? To have influence among? To be recognized by? So the church that struggles with partiality toward the rich, who, who, who welcomes the rich and castigates the poor, who ultimately sees themselves as those who want to be rich or, or, or consider themselves morally superior to the poor. The church who practices partiality this way demonstrates that they desperately want to be well-liked by those that they want to be like. In the ancient Roman world, It was the rich and the powerful who through unjust means would steal the property of the poor, taking them into court and leveraging their wealth and power and position in society to defraud the needy of what was rightfully theirs. More still, James tells us it was the wealthy unbelievers in the world who were the chief antagonists to the gospel in the first century. It's the wealthy people in the world, James is saying, who are out there saying that the gospel is stupid, that nobody needs Jesus, that this new Christianity thing is just a, a waste of time. And yet, says James, these are the people that you are welcoming and giving special status to in your gathering. How illogical. So by favoring the rich, or really any class, any kind of person, the Christian effectively aligns himself with that person, and all that they say and do. Yet it was Christ Himself who said that to follow Him requires us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Him only. To be only aligned, only, only allegiant to Him. Amen. That if there is any one person in the world that defines who we are and what we want to be like, it is Christ. Yeah. Right? The incarnate Son of God who gave His life as a ransom for many So now you see the problem of partiality. Aligning with the powers and provision of this world sets us against Christ who gave His life to redeem us for being slaves to this world and its sinful power structures. Classism, racism, ethnocentrism, ageism, every other form of ungodly prejudice says that there are groups of people who are more worthy of my friendship, more worthy of my allegiance, more worthy of my ministry in the gospel than others. But Genesis one twenty seven tells us a different story. Genesis one twenty seven tells us that God made mankind, every race, both genders, in His image. And all throughout Scripture, the image of God, the imago Dei, in all of humanity is affirmed over and over and over again so that regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of our nation of origin, irrespective of our birth family or whether we are male or female, irrespective of how much money we have to our name, each of us has equal dignity, equal worth, equal value in the eyes of Almighty God. Each man, woman, and child is worthy of hearing the gospel of Jesus, irrespective of what they look like, without regard to their appearance. Every person has been made for relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and all are worthy of the mercy and care of Christians who have been brought from death to life by a merciful God. Partiality is illogical. I'll say the S word it's stupid. It undermines the gospel that we have come to believe. The sin of partiality also, as James shows us in verses 8 through 11, fails to display God's character. James says in verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. If you fulfill the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, says James. The royal law, which is the law of God spoken to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. We find it summed up in over 600 commands uh, that that are given by God uh, from Exodus through Deuteronomy. This law is summed up by Jesus in two commands uh, that are stated specifically in the law. Jesus uh, sums up the law in these two, uh, these two, by these two commands in Matthew 22. He says that the greatest of all the commands is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you can keep those two perfectly, you will be able to keep all 613 commands of the law in the Old Testament. All of it can be kept if you only keep those two, to love God supremely and to love neighbor sacrificially and to do both with perfect integrity and consistency. We've often said that the Old Testament law is given by God in order to restrain people from their sin. Because people are prone to sin, God gives the law to Israel as boundaries for their conduct as His people. His law is given as a reflection of his own holy character. That is to be in relationship with God, to be called, as, uh, uh, to be called one who is uh, among his people, one of his children. You're to live within these boundaries of holiness. His people are to keep God's law as they strive to be holy like God is holy. The law is not a list of things to do and to not do upon which we are graded by a percentage. Right? You don't get to keep 500 of the 613 commands of the law and get like a, oh, that's, that's hard to do that math, <laughs> and get like an 85%, right, and get a passing grade. That's not what James says. James says to fail in one part of the law is to fail the whole law. So the law is not a list of things to do and to not do upon which you get a percentage grade at the end. You might get an A plus or a B minus or a C plus and, and, and even there you're still passing. No, James says the law is a covenant contract with God. You've got to keep all of it or you break all of it. The law is to be kept in, in whole. Either we are entirely holy as God is holy in every aspect of our lives, Or we are entirely guilty even by one small act of sin against him. Now search your conscience. Does this truth of Scripture tell you that you are holy or that you are guilty? The truth is that none of us can on our own be holy like God is holy. All of us have failed the law at some point. All of us have have failed to uphold the holy, perfect character that God has and intends for us. And that's the point of the law. That's what the law teaches. That's what the 613 commands teach you and me. That we are slaves to sin. That we can't not but sin. You can't get away from it. Sin is at every turn. It is in every proclivity of your heart. You can't stop yourself from sinning, Scripture teaches us. You need to be set free by the only one who is entirely without sin. We need someone to redeem us, to rescue us from our sinful state. So then, partiality, giving, giving deference or preference to certain kinds of people, depending upon what they look like, is a defiant act, a, 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 an act defiant against the command to love neighbor. It is to love one neighbor more than another. It is to act with disregard for one neighbor because of what they look like, and in so doing makes each of us guilty of having broken the law of God. It is unholy and sinful. And the church of Jesus Christ that makes distinctions among itself based upon outward appearances is a church that has defiled the holiness of God and sought to live and act as slaves to their sin. I know a friend who served at a church in the South. He is Hispanic. He was called to be a associate pastor and college minister at this church, a historic church in the south, a first Baptist church of a particular city. And when he got there, he found that there, were, there was one service at two different, uh, in two different locations in that church. There was a, a, a church service, a worship service in the main worship center, the main auditorium, the main sanctuary. And there was a second service downstairs in the basement. Who do you think got to go to the worship service in the auditorium? The white, wealthy people. And who do you think had to sit in the chapel in this church, this first Baptist church of a major city? The Hispanic and poor people, regularly greeted at the door and ushered to either the auditorium or to the chapel. Dear friends, making distinctions between the rich and the poor is not the only sin of partiality. It occurs also when we do it with race. It occurs also when we do it with gender. It occurs also when, when we do it with how we appear on the outside. Like married families get a space, a space of special honor in our church and single people have to sit at the back or on the margins. And Wealthy people are allowed to teach, but poor people have to just sit as students. The sin of partiality runs deep. And it comes out of our own sinful predisposition to treat with favor those that we like and those whom we would want to be like. So church this morning, because of the way that James warns us about the sin of partiality, beware, take caution against the grave sin of ungodly prejudice. It is deadly. Beware of it. And instead work to root out of your own heart presumption and favoritism toward other people. Obviously, there's a lot of personal application for us uh, just as individuals not acting with partiality or deference to different kinds of people in the world in which we uh, live and work and seek to minister in the name of Jesus Christ. But remember, James in chapter 2 is speaking to congregations of Christians, whole gatherings of believers. So then I think that there are some evaluative questions that we need to ask ourselves as a congregation and and seek to answer with as much clarity and honesty as we can. Questions like, what things do we do in our church that appeal to, Or seek to appeal to a particular kind of person over another? Are our ministries, are our facilities intended to attract the wealthy and those who have their lives all put together, wrapped up with a nice bow? Is that our hope for ministry as a church? To be known as the wealthy, well-educated body of believers on the west side of Albuquerque? Or are we praying rather that God would bring to us difficult people, people in need, those who are not like us, so that it would be clear that there is no hint of of any sort of partiality among us, so that the truth of the gospel that Christ died for Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, all alike, might be true and displayed among us. The sin of partiality is deadly for so many reasons. But I'm grateful that James does not leave us there. He doesn't leave us hanging with this uh, maybe fear or, or shadow of condemnation hanging over us, but he gives us instruction as how to root out partiality in our own lives. He gives us a cure to prejudice, a cure to partiality in verses 12 and 13. He says, he begins right in verse 1, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He describes why partiality is sinful. Then in verse 12, so instead... In light of this, do differently. Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. The cure to partiality is speaking and acting with mercy toward all. How do you overcome your sinful predisposition to treat people who are like you and who you want to be like better than others? By just extending mercy without distinction to everyone. The cure to partiality is to, as James says, to live under a different law. He says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The law of liberty is a different law, which is actually the same law that James has already talked about. James says we're to speak and to act. Notice again, he's, he's incorporating the whole part of the person, both in speech and in deed, in word and in deed. So we don't just get to talk like Christians and, and feel good about ourselves. We have to act like it. And we don't just have to act with love toward others. We also have to hold fast to the truth of the gospel in what we say and what we believe. But James says we are to speak and act as those judged by the law of liberty. This is the second time that James has used this phrase, law of liberty. He uses it the first time in chapter 1, verse 25. The law of liberty is the law of the Old Testament. But it's the law of the Old Testament, those 613 commands that have been fulfilled and made clear and perfect by Christ. You see, for those who live apart from Jesus, who are outside of a relationship of faith and trust in Christ as Lord, the Old Testament law serves as a perfect standard that you have to uphold by your moral conduct. If you seek to be holy as God is holy, apart from relationship with Christ, you have to keep all 613 of those commands without fail. But for those who are seeking to do so, find quickly that it is impossible to uphold. Because once you failed in one part of the law, you failed the whole thing. But here's the wonder and the blessing of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, is that He lived His entire life without ever breaking that law. Of the 630 commands, or the two that sum up the whole, to love God supremely, to love neighbor, neighbor sacrificially, Jesus never failed. Amen. Not in the least. He upheld it perfectly. He lived his whole life without breaking the law. He perfectly loved God, perfectly loved neighbor, and thus that law, those 613 commands, have been completed in him and by him. It's been fulfilled. The contract has been upheld by a substitute. So every person who turns from their sin and submits themselves in trust to Jesus as Lord is now free from having to complete the law in their own efforts, you see. The test of perfect holiness has been passed for us by Jesus with a perfect score. And His perfect grade of holiness, His perfect righteousness on the cross is substituted for our total failure. This is good news. Catch this though. The holiness of God, the character of God that is displayed, that is described for us in the law of God never goes away. It never changes. God is always holy. He never stops being holy. And he never stops requiring that his people be holy like he is holy. So the law that reflects his holiness still remains. The royal law to love neighbor as ourself still holds. But now in Christ, loving neighbor is not a duty that we perform in order to prove our holiness to God. Instead, because we are declared holy by our faith in Christ Jesus, we are made free to love our neighbor out of the joy of being restored in relationship with God. You see how on on either side of Christ, the law is a heavy load to carry or a thing that gives us great freedom. On on, on the side of of being outside of Christ, the law is impossible to uphold because we fail all the time. It is an impossible burden to carry. But because Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly, we who are united to Christ by faith are now free to love neighbor because the law of God has been written on our hearts as he gives his Holy Spirit to dwell in us through faith, to change our dispositions, not to show partiality, but to show mercy. So the royal law love your neighbor as yourself, is the law of liberty. But what makes the difference is whether you're following that law in the pointless attempt to prove yourself to God or from the perspective of one whose relationship with God has been proven by faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So what does it mean to live under the law of liberty, to be judged by the law of liberty in this instance? James says it means being merciful, showing kindness, showing concern to everyone always. And the motivation that we have for being merciful to everyone, always, is because we have known the mercy of God who demonstrated his own love for us by sending his son Jesus to die in our place. When we were sinners and deserved only God's righteous wrath against our sin, Christ died to make us right with God. The mercy of God has triumphed over judgment, dear friend, the mercy of God has triumphed over the judgment of God in your life when you turned from sin and took to follow Jesus in faith. And the mercy of God triumphs over the self-righteous judgment and prejudice of even Christians when we extend godly mercy with impartiality because Christ showed us His love that even while we were sinners, He died for us. Amen. The cure to partiality is to show mercy and kindness to all without distinction. So, church, Christian, make that decision. Choose to extend Christ-like compassion in both word and deed without distinction to everyone. Root out the sin of partiality in your own heart by loving your neighbor as God in Christ has loved you. You know, Jesus gives an awesome example of what it means to love neighbor. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We find Jesus illustrating what it really means to love neighbor, to those who are not like us. As Jesus is going about his earthly ministry teaching, we know that often he was approached by uh, Pharisees, by those religious elite, religious rulers, and others who sought to test his knowledge of god 's law and his consistency to keep it, trying to trap him in inconsistencies so that they could label him a blasphemer and in Luke chapter ten, verse twenty five we find a lawyer uh, that 's an expert in the law of God, who stood up to put Jesus to the test and he said, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you understand it? How do you interpret it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this lawyer knows that all, this expert in the law of God knows that all 613 commands can be kept if you'll just keep these two with perfect consistency. And Jesus, recognizing a good answer when he sees one, says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live right? Keep those two with perfect consistency, perfect integrity, never fail in either aspect, and you will have eternal life. Then the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, desiring to prove his worthiness in the sight of Jesus, said to Jesus, so who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, "A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, presumably a Jewish man, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him. And departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw the man, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. For if the priest had touched this man, who may he may have presumed was dead, he would become uh, ritually unclean and unable to perform his duties uh, in the temple. And so he chooses ritual cleanliness over helping a supposed dead man. So likewise, a Levite, Jesus continues, a Levite is a person from the tribe of Levi from whom uh, all of the priests in the temple came and Levites served regularly in the temple. When he came to the place and saw the man beaten, left half for dead, he passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan Samaritans, you know, were those people left behind after the Jews were deported to Babylon. The, those who, who, who stayed behind intermarried with the surrounding people groups and they, they uh, became what were known by the Jews who returned from exile in Babylon as uh, kind of like half-breeds, as lesser thans, and they became uh, political and ethnic enemies of one another. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, to where the man was beaten and left for dead. And when he saw him, He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of this man and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus turns the question to the lawyer who asked him, who is my neighbor? And he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the lawyer, this expert in Jewish law, does not say the priest, he does not say the Levite, but rightly says, can't even say though, notice, can't even say it was the Samaritan. Can't even call him by what he is. He just says the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to this lawyer who sought to justify himself by asking who is my neighbor, you go and do likewise. Jesus has a way of Just cutting right to the core of the issue. The problem for this lawyer was not that he understood the law or was willing to keep the law, but he wanted to keep a qualified version of the law. I want to love the neighbor that I see as my neighbor. And Jesus tells this parable of this good Samaritan to say, Your neighbor is not just who you would like to be your neighbor. Your neighbor is every man, woman, and child who has been made in the image of God, right. who is a rightful recipient of your mercy and compassion in a time of need. Amen. Dear Christian, let us be those who do not merely hear the word, but also do it. Let us choose to extend Christ like compassion in word and in deed without distinction to everyone. Now, just for a moment, I'd like to turn my attention to those who may be here this morning and don't know Jesus Christ, the way, as Lord and Savior, as uh, we do as members of uh, of this church at First West. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is so called because he is God who took on humanity to live among us without sin, to die the death that we deserved, Fulfilling the law in our place that if we should simply turn from our sin and trust in him, we would be made right with God, our creator. There is no way to give Christ-like mercy to all who are around us apart from knowing Jesus Christ. And there is no point in being merciful if we are not being merciful in order to point people to Jesus. The most important thing that you can come away from this morning is that not that James is calling all of us to live a better life and to be nice to people, but that James is calling us to have our hearts transformed by the mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And friend, if you've not yet been transformed that way, make today the day that you turn from sin and trust in Jesus, who through his mercy died to save you from your sin be made right with Christ today so that you may live with Christ-like compassion to your neighbor tomorrow. Let me pray.